0: 7 a.m., Tijuana, Mexico, at a little plaza just outside the border crossing into the United States. About 250 people, lots with backpacks and suitcases, lots with kids, crowd around a woman who holds an oversized notebook in her arms. That's what I've come to see the notebook.
1: Hay alguien más del 532?
0: Anybody else at 532?
1: Alguien del 533? Anybody got 533? 534?
0: 534. The notebook is a list of names, each neatly written in ballpoint pen. If she calls you, then you get to enter the official port of entry. It's just over the fence. Each number has 10 names under it.
1: Okay. 534. 535.
0: You have to get in the book. If you just walk up to the port of entry and say you want asylum in the United States, you're running for your life, I will tell you to get out. You have to go outside, get a number, wait your turn. A couple people told us this happened to them.
1: Beatriz!
0: She starts to call out all the names under the number 535. I've edited out the last names here because so many people were nervous about being identified by cartels and gangs when we talked to them.
1: Beatriz! Alexa! Alexa! Alberto!
0: She's standing outside the busiest border crossing in the Western Hemisphere a complex of buildings so sprawling that I never figured out exactly where they started and ended. by a federal agency with 60,000 employees. This woman is not one of them. She's seeking asylum herself, here with her son. She said her husband was killed by gangs back in El Salvador. Then in July, they threatened to do it to her 10-year-old son, too, if she didn't pay up. So she says she quit her job and abandoned her house and came here. That's what we have pulling people from the crowd lining them up to enter the United States. That's our system for doing it these days.
1: Tranquilos. Tranquilos.
0: Calm down. Calm down, she says. Now, in theory, this job shouldn't fall to a random person who's not even a U.S. citizen. Under U.S. law and international treaties, the moment anybody seeking asylum presents him or herself to a Border Patrol officer, that officer has an obligation to process them right then. So, in theory, all the people standing in this plaza should be able to march up to the huge border station and get processed immediately. No wait, no notebook with numbers. But under President Trump, the government's saying it doesn't have the capacity to process all the people showing up at our southern border. So people stand outside our border, waiting. Not just here, but at official ports of entry all across the southwest. Over the last six months, Customs and Border Protection officers have been stopping asylum seekers from even walking up to federal facilities at the border. This has been filmed by crews from CBS, NBC, Fox, and many others. They haul people in the middle of bridges that cross from Mexico into the United States at El Paso and Brownsville and turn them away before they can even get to the official ports of entry on the other side to apply for asylum. Customs and Border Protection says that people are allowed in once space becomes available. They expect this will be temporary. And the quote, no one is being denied the opportunity to make a claim of credible fear or seek asylum. The lawyers for the immigrants point out that in the past, these facilities have not had a problem processing the number of people who show up today. So people kept waiting outside to fend for themselves. Here in Tijuana, it's so many people that they wait for weeks. So to keep things orderly, they have this notebook. And because it raises legal issues under asylum law, for either the Mexican or American governments to keep a list like this, it's managed by an asylum seeker.
1: Okay, it's not something that we... The
0: woman with the notebook is named Karen. She put her name in the notebook her number is 598, started paying for a cheap room nearby and volunteered with Mexican officials to help clean the plaza or whatever, just to be useful. And then at some point, the Jamaican refugee who'd been managing the notebook got his number called and passed the notebook to her. He really could not pick anybody better for this job. Karen managed people in her old job, in the Salvadoran Ministry of Health, and says she was also a leader at a church. And she's good at managing people. And she's not shouting names. She calls everybody preciosa. Precious.
1: Preciosa. Rapido, porque no pueden. Goes
0: about the daily task of disappointing people whose numbers aren't picked with as much kindness as anybody could possibly muster.
1: Yo quiero pedirles un favor. Yo quiero pedirles un favor.
0: I want to ask you all a favor, she sang, but she doesn't say right away what it is. Dozens of tired people look at her.
1: Quiero que todos nos por los que se van.
0: I want us all to be happy for those who are going in. Sí? Yeah?
1: Because
0: just like you, I'm waiting for my number, okay?
1: I know that
0: the effort to be here has been hard for everybody. I know that it's really difficult. I understand because I'm living it too. I'm also paying rent. I'm also spending money on food. But I want to appeal to your conscience, okay?
1: And
0: here finally she gets the favor. She explains there's a pregnant woman. She wants to jump to the front of the line. And she wants everybody to be okay with that and feel good about it. Nobody seems too happy with this, but nobody complains either. The person who brought me to see this is an L.A. Times reporter who first wrote about the existence of the notebook, Cindy Carcamo. Although the notebook is supposedly the system that asylum seekers are running for each other to make their weight more orderly, Cindy says they probably didn't create the notebook. In fact, most everything about the notebook is controlled by a Mexican government agency called Grupo Beta. Grupo Speda takes the notebook each night and stores it in a safe. And a Grupo Speda official explained to Cindy and me that every morning, they talk to somebody from U.S. Customs and Border Protection.
2: Por teléfono, or no? They just meet, talking, and then he says, we're taking this many people in today. And that's how it works. Mm-hmm. Every day in the morning, U.S. Customs and Border Protection gives a number to Mexican officials, and then that Mexi- the Mexican officials give that number to the notebook keeper, and she calls that many names.
0: On this particular day, only 20 people were allowed to enter the port of entry. One day earlier in the week, it was zero. On any given day, with over a 1,000 names uncalled in the notebook, it's 20 or 30 or 40. 50 is the most anybody had seen. Sydney and I talked to lots of people who were waiting, and they were pretty much exactly who you'd expect. Many of them said they were escaping violence in Mexico or Central America. Some seemed truly terrified, even here in the plaza. One woman said that yesterday her son thought that he spotted one of the men who was after them at the shelter they were staying at, so they fled to a hotel. But we also met a 29-year-old mom named Lara from a tiny Mexican town called Jalapa in Guerrero who was here because her cousin in California keeps telling her that her kids would have a better life in the United States. So she sold off everything and brought the five of them here. Really nice kids, by the way. Hoping for political asylum.'t
1: no, si, no, no no violence este... she said It's not about violence.
0: When she's not fleeing violence. she doesn't really have much chance of getting asylum in the United States. But it was weird to talk to somebody and know that she probably would not get what she had pinned all her hopes on and traveled 1500 miles for her, and that she and her kids were probably going to wait for weeks and then get turned back. i never had the experience of knowing so clearly someone's future that they do not know. It was hard to keep looking her in the eye.
3: You know, everything was in Spanish, right? So I don't understand Spanish. I didn't get anything. So I want to know what's Uh, happening. Give me a
1: moment.
3: Yesterday you told me mañana. Today again, mañana.
1: Okay.
0: When Karen finished rounding up her 20 people for the day, this guy from Cameroon named Ransom approached her. Karen's English doesn't go much past give me a moment, and his Spanish doesn't go much past mañana. So Karen dragged in Cindy, the LA Times reporter. Translate.
3: Can you ask how many people will be going in
1: tomorrow?
0: When they're done, Ransom told me and Cindy that he left Cameroon with 16 other people three months before. They flew to Ecuador, which is a path that lots of people take because visas are easy to get there. Then they walk through the jungle, north, through Central America, sleeping in the bush, until they got here three weeks ago.
3: It's been a tough Jenny. It's really been tough. It's been a long way. The money's finished. Like, I don't have a way to stay. That's the problem. That's why I'm frustrated. That's the problem.
1: Where are you staying?
3: We just live nearby. We just, like, you would not understand. It's, it's quite tough. Like, we're like, like 40 people in one room, in one small room. It's Just an abandoned house, something like that. How much do you pay for that? We, we pay like $50 a month.
0: He doesn't want to be here so long that he has to pay a second month. He says they were robbed along the way in the jungle. So when he arrived in Tijuana three weeks ago, he only had $80. so little money, how's he surviving?
3: Well, um, water. In the absence of food. You know, I drink water.
0: The situation he's fleeing should make him a good candidate for asylum in the United States. The government of Cameroon has been killing the English-speaking minority in the country and burning their homes, trying to suppress an armed uprising. But it's a hard moment to try to enter our country, The Trump administration is doing all kinds of things to be stricter with potential immigrants. And as you'll hear this hour, some of them, like keeping desperate people waiting outside the border for weeks, like separating children from their parents, even if you agree that we need to be stricter with who comes into the country, these things can seem unnecessary and maybe kind of cruel. Today on our program, I think at this point most of us have heard about a few of the things that the president and his appointees have done to try to get control of the border. We've heard about these family separations, we've heard about the travel ban. But in fact, it's a wide-ranging, coordinated effort across many agencies, all kinds of things that have not gotten a lot of attention. What's interesting is that so much of their effort, lots of the things that they're doing, are not cracking down on people breaking the law or sneaking across the border, not targeting criminals or bad hombres. Many of the efforts are targeted at the people who are trying their best to play by the rules, do what we ask of foreigners who want to come here, people trying to obey our laws, like asylum seekers showing up at our doors saying, I'm in danger at home. The laws allow me to apply for Haven. Today we take you on a tour of the many, many things that are all happening, the ways that we're shutting our doors to outsiders. I'm WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Equine, all together now. So to enter the United States from the south, you can go to the official border station, the port of entry, And do it legally, like the people who you heard trying to do it in that plaza in Tijuana. Or you might get to that plaza, see the line, see the wait, and pause. Or maybe you try to go to the border station in Brownsville or El Paso. Again, you might pause and decide to take your kids and take your chances and head out to cross the border illegally. I was talking to a Customs and Border Protection officer, a spokesman for the union, Chris Cabrera. He patrols the area around the Rio Grande, and he says that he picks up people like this all the time. They tell them they tried the port of entry. The the line was too long. They didn't want to wait that long. Um, And that's why a lot of them choose to
4: come through the river because they don't want to wait.
0: Once he apprehends them, there's something new now that they go through under this administration, a new thing that's happening on the border. People caught crossing into the country illegally are being rounded up and sent to federal criminal court in mass hearings with dozens of people getting sentenced at the same time. The government has done these hearings in the past, but never on the scale that's happening now. As of April, they're doing them in every district along the border, sometimes twice a day, with tens of thousands of people convicted. They're prosecuting a crime that didn't used to be treated like a crime. Before this, if you crossed the border illegally, you'd most likely just get put into immigration proceedings and probably deported. Now, you go through criminal court first. Even if you came here to ask for asylum... This is happening under the administration's zero-tolerance policy. You've probably heard about the part of that policy that separated children from their parents. That part has officially ended. But this move to prosecute border crossings as criminal offenses, this is actually the main point of the zero-tolerance policy. Reporter Julia Preston went to McAllen, Texas, to one of the courts that's had the highest number of prosecutions since this all started, to see what this looks like in practice. And what she discovered is what's happening now is just the first step Towards much bigger things that are in the works. Right, here's Julia.
4: Picture a federal courtroom. The defendants sit with their lawyers at one table, the prosecutors on the other side, the judge up front. The McAllen courtroom was a stunningly different site. Right, Five rows of 10, wooden 10, benches, 10, usually 10, meant 10, for 10, visitors, 10, were packed 10, with 10, defendants, 10, squeezed 10, in 10, shoulder to shoulder. Seventy-four nine, zero, of them. The defendants were dressed in 10, tattered 10, T-shirts 10, and zero, jeans, not prison uniforms. Some of the men had trouble keeping their pants up when they stood because their belts were taken away when they were detained. They'd been caught by the border patrol after they crossed the Rio Grande River, most of them just one or two days before. Ladies and
5: gentlemen, let me ask you each to stand and raise your right hand, and take an oath before the court this morning. Please proceed.
4: That's the sound of seventy-four people standing up to be sworn in when they're shackled at the ankles and chained around the waist. They all had one hand that was cuffed tightly to the waist chain and just one hand free. In another hearing I went to, there were 87 defendants. In that one, the marshals had to put some of them in the jury box. The defendants would all be out of there, charged, convicted, and sentenced in just over two hours. It was mass justice at head-spinning speed.
5: Please be
4: the magistrate judge presiding over this hearing, Scott Hacker, didn't sit in his usual place on the high bench. Instead, he spent the whole hearing on his feet, right in front of the migrants, so he could see each one of them. The migrants were wearing wireless headphones to hear the Spanish interpreter. Judge Hacker took a few minutes to make sure everyone's headphone was working.
5: Sir, can you hear? Yeah, gentlemen, next to me, can you hear?
4: The defendants awkwardly adjusted their headphones with their one free hand. Throughout the hearing, the security guards ran around as tech support, resetting the headphones or swapping them out for fresh ones. Judge Hacker ran the hearing like a professor, explaining things in plain language and raising an index finger in the air in big gestures to punctuate his points. He addressed the migrants as sir and ma'am and ladies and gentlemen.
5: This is your day in court. It's important that you're here to understand everything that I explained
4: to you. I'll admit, I was surprised. I was expecting some kind of rodeo justice. People herded through with no idea what was happening to them. But it wasn't that. The judge, the public defenders, even the prosecutors seemed to be working hard to ensure that all 74 defendants got some kind of basic due process. Every time the judge explained something, he would go around pointing to each defendant one by one, getting them to confirm that they understood.
5: Then I'll start with the person on the front row. It should be Mr. Paglia Cepeda. He'll answer yes or no. Then I'll point to Ms. Montilla. He'll answer. Then I'll point to Ms. Perez. He'll answer. When I finish with the first row, I'll start with the gentleman on the second row, the third row, the fourth row, and continue until I get everyone. Have you understood the instructions? Yes or no, sir?
0: Next. Yes, yes, yes,
4: yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. 74 yeses. Over the course of the hearing, he would go around to every person this way a total of 16 times. Judge Hacker explained the crime they were accused of, illegal entry. It's a federal offense, but the first time around, it's a minor one. A misdemeanor.
5: Do each of you understand this charge to be legal entry? Please answer yes or no, SIML- Mission, sir. Oh, yes. Oh, sir. Yes, sir. Eh? Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
4: Yes. Sir. yes sir. Si senor. Yes, yes, yes. Seventy-four times. A judge I observed in another hearing had a different method. For some questions, he had all the defendants answer in unison, which sounded like this:
5: Do each of you understand your right to an attorney?
4: Yes. The judge carefully explained their right to a trial and the possible consequences of pleading guilty. Fines, jail time, deportation. They did have the option of pleading not guilty and going to trial, but they still wouldn't stand a chance of winning because for most of them, the Border Patrol had caught them near the Rio Grande. They had admitted when and where they crossed the river, so there really wasn't much room for argument. They'd been caught in the act. The federal public defenders, all 18 of them in the McAllen office, had come to the courtroom in the hours before the hearing to meet with each defendant and basically prepare them to plead guilty. Most of those meetings lasted just a few minutes. Then everyone declared their plea.
5: Mr. Santos, they're saying you're legal in on the 19th of this month. How do you plead, guilty or not guilty? Guilty. <laughs> 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 Mr. Morales, they're saying you're legal in on the 19th of this month.
4: 74 <laughs> guilty pleas. Even when you know it's coming, it's a somber thing to see. A group of people I wondered about during this hearing were the migrants who wanted to seek asylum. Because even with a criminal conviction, they can still apply for asylum. But it wasn't clear the migrants understood that. Before sentencing, a man from Nicaragua stood up, worried and apologetic. He told the judge he'd come to the U.S. to apply for political asylum. He'd brought evidence of his persecution. If he took a guilty plea, he asked... Would he be deported right away and never get a chance at asylum? Judge Hacker thought he would get a chance, but he couldn't say for certain. He's not an immigration judge. The way it works is that after the hearing, the man will be transferred into detention in the immigration system, a different system. And there, he'll have to insist to the officers that he wants to pursue his asylum claims a lot of people might not figure that out. For many asylum seekers, going first to criminal court was very confusing. Then it was time for the sentences. Often in federal court, this takes days or weeks. But here, the judge didn't skip a beat. The sentences came right away. Ten days, 20 days, for a handful of cases, People who had some kind of record, who'd been convicted of illegal entry before or had drug or domestic violence convictions, traffic violations. The longest sentence for that group was 100 days. Everyone else, though, the vast majority in this courtroom, had no criminal record in the U.S., and this was their first illegal entry offense. All of those people were given the same sentence, time served. In other words, the time they'd already spent in detention, which for most of them was less than two days. Two days. All of this work to deter illegal crossings, and yet most everyone walked out of the court that day with basically no punishment. Leaving the courtroom, I had a lot of questions. When Attorney General Jeff Sessions talks about this new policy of prosecuting everyone who crosses the border illegally, he says its purpose is to deter people from making those crossings. But how was two days of detention any kind of deterrent? It didn't make sense. Especially when you consider the massive amount of resources that go into these hearings. The Border Patrol agents writing up the charges, the paralegals, the court clerks, the prosecutors checking criminal backgrounds and figuring out who they should recommend for extra jail time. I really didn't know what to make of it all until I had a conversation with Ryan Patrick. He's the head prosecutor of the federal district that McAllen is part of, the Southern District of Texas. And he told me something I hadn't heard from the attorney general or President Trump. He told me these misdemeanor prosecutions are just phase one of a larger strategy by the Justice Department.
5: So uh, some of the way these cases are handled could very well change as our resources on our side change as well.
4: When you say could very well change, you mean there could be more felony cases?
5: There could be. Yes, ma'am.
4: I see. Is that the goal or is that where you're trying to go with this?
5: as appropriate and for cases that we can prove, yes, we will file more felony cases.
4: With illegal entry, the first offense is a misdemeanor. But if somebody is caught crossing illegally a second time, they can be prosecuted for a felony and go to prison for up to two years. A felony conviction makes it very difficult for a person ever to get a visa to enter the United States legally, much less get a green card or become a citizen. The government's ramping up to prosecute more people. Border Patrol is hiring. So are the U.S. Marshals. In May, 32 percent of people caught crossing the southwest border were sent to be prosecuted. A month later, it was 46 percent of them. Administration officials told me the goal is 100 percent, literally zero tolerance for illegal crossings. This could mean prosecuting something like 200,000 people a year for the misdemeanor offense. Before long, it could mean tens of thousands of newly convicted felons in federal prison. President Trump and the attorney general have long said that people who cross the border illegally are just criminals. Now, every day, more and more of them are becoming exactly that.
0: Julia Preston. She's a contributing writer to The Marshall Project. You can read a print version of her story on The Marshall Project's website, marshallproject.org. Wow. two, the kitchen sink. So the administration's immigration policy, this has been widely reported, He's run from the office of White House Senior Advisor Stephen Miller. He's 33 years old, brings a detailed knowledge of immigration issues and regulations to the task, has installed like-minded people at the various agencies that deal with immigration. We requested sit-down interviews with him and with numerous other administration officials throughout the government. They all turned us down. But I'm going to take this act and try to give you a sense of the sweep of the changes that they put into place, the variety and ingenuity and comprehensiveness of them. Here we go. The administration has brought back workplace raids at a level that hasn't been done for years, rounding up hundreds of undocumented people at a time. The State Department and Department of Homeland Security have cracked down on recalcitrant countries. Yes, that is an official designation that we give to some countries, recalcitrant. These are countries that do not accept deportees that we want to send them. There were 20 countries like that just after the president took office. His administration has twisted arms, imposed sanctions, and convinced more than half of those countries to take people back, clearing the way for 15,000 more people to be deported. The Department of Homeland Security has set up a denaturalization task force to go after people who lied on their citizenship applications and literally strip away their citizenship. The attorney general has changed the rules so that if you're fleeing gang violence or domestic violence, even if immigration agents believe that your life is in danger, That's not grounds for asylum in the United States. This affects a lot of people. And then there's a whole set of policies that the Trump administration has put into place that affects all of the people who are trying to lawfully enter the United States, filling out forms, sending in information, waiting their turns. They are all coming under increased scrutiny. The forms are much longer. Applicants are called in to be interviewed about things they were never called in for before. And attorneys who help people through this process will tell you that they're getting a ton of what they call RFEs, requests for evidence, for perfectly ordinary things that in the past would have been routine. Here's an example. Immigration attorney Marisol Perez works at a firm that filed a visa request on behalf of their client, the Archdiocese of San Antonio, which is trying to hire a priest from another country. They were surprised when they got an RFE from the government, I've seen this, asking them to prove that, in fact, the Archdiocese really exists. As a functioning business,
6: it was shocking to us. This is the second largest archdiocese, Catholic archdiocese in the country. Certainly they're in business. Certainly they're flourishing. Certainly they are a legitimate operating business.
0: Do you think it was just a bureaucratic snafu?
6: If I chalked it up to that, there are lots of bureaucratic snafus.
0: It didn't take much work for me to collect some. There was a the musician who was told that the two Grammys he won and the three that he was nominated for but did not win were not sufficient evidence of his musical talent and that more proof would be required before he could reside in the United States. There was the RFE asking a British citizen to have her British birth certificate translated into English, please. There was the RFE where the government argued that an architect didn't qualify for the visa he wanted because you don't need a specialized degree to be an architect, even though, of course, you do need a specialized degree. According to one study in the last quarter of 2017 alone, the percentage of work visas getting RFEs tripled. Three-fourths of them got RFEs.
4: The most mundane ones are just asking for documents that you've already
0: sent. Jacqueline Watson is an immigration attorney in Austin. She says she's now seeing this in the vast majority of cases she files. RFEs asking for stuff she's already submitted.
4: If it happens in one case, you can say, "Okay, that was a mistake. If it happens in almost every case you file, there's something wrong.
0: She and other immigration attorneys see it as a deliberate strategy to gum up the works, slow the process, discourage people from applying, give out fewer visas. And she said, when you get an RFE, it also means you can't get work permits or travel permits you would otherwise be able to get while applying. A spokesman for the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, emailed me a statement saying that assertions that they are trying to slow the immigration process are, quote, inaccurate, And in fact, their reforms are intended to do the opposite. Quote, reduce incomplete or frivolous filings, thus speeding up the immigration process for many applicants and petitioners, allowing them to receive a decision faster. Attorneys say visas and green cards are now being turned down all the time for reasons that they never saw before. Computer programmers routinely used to get H-1B visas, but the rules were changed to make that harder. That affects other professions, too. People were rejected because the government concludes they won't be able to support themselves in the United States, even though they provide all the proof that used to be needed in the past. All this has led and Watson and a lot of immigration attorneys to conclude that at this point,
4: the Department of Homeland Security is always looking for new and
0: creative ways to f- our clients. To people on the other side of this, People calling for these changes and making these changes in our immigration system. They see every part of this so totally differently from the way these immigration attorneys do. From their point of view, the entire immigration system is a mess. Overloaded with false claims and people trying to cheat their way into the United States. When the Attorney General gives speeches, he talks about nearly 100,000 people a year seeking asylum. Seeking asylum because they know if you say the word asylum, we'll set you free in the United States till a judge can see your case years from now. Lots of them never show up for the day in court.
5: The system is being gamed. There's no doubt about it. The credible
0: Mark McQuarrie is the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies, a Washington think tank that calls for stricter controls on immigration. He makes the case that the United States would be better off if we would just cut the number of people who immigrate here each year to less than half of what it is now. He sums it up this way: He doesn't see a need for a huge, thriving country like ours, with hundreds of millions of people, to import any workers from overseas. So, which categories of people have such a
5: compelling case to be admitted that we let them in and that would be husbands wives and little kids of american citizens genuine einsteins humanity has not produced that many einsteins a year and um humanitarian immigration to the extent of uh, that people who cannot stay where they are for a second longer you add all that up, that's maybe 400,000 people a year, 350,000. It's still a lot of people, but it's fewer than there
0: are now. Right now, it's about a million legal immigrants in a year. Of course, you could quibble with his numbers. Somebody else might argue that there are over a million people in the category, people who cannot stay where they are for a second longer. But given this vision, that we don't need outsiders, and that tons of people are trying to cheat and game their way into the country. When I told Krikoria and what the immigration attorneys had told me, about all the ways that the Trump administration seemed to be slowing things down and finding any excuse to say no to their clients, he was utterly unimpressed. He appreciated the tighter rules and extra scrutiny that have come down this last year and a half.
5: It's it's definitely called for. It's long overdue. Now, there's always going to be, um, you know, bureaucratic absurdities. You know, does the Archdiocese of San Antonio really exist? I mean, this is the kind of thing that any large organization uh, is going to generate sometimes. But... The strict scrutiny of applications is long, long overdue.
0: More change is coming. One of the biggest ideas that's been floated publicly by the White House Office of Management and Budget is a proposal that you won't be able to get legal residency. You won't be able to get a green card or citizenship. If you or your kids have ever gotten food stamps or other public benefits, even if your kids are citizens, if this went through, it would become impossible for millions of people to ever get legal status in this country. they become eligible for deportation. It's unclear at this point. The administration's going to go through with that proposal. Coming up, food fight between the president's immigration staffers, the State Department, the Office of Management and Budget, and the most powerful military the world has ever known, guess who wins? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life. I'm R.O. Glass. Today's program, let me count the ways. We're trying to document the many, many ways that the Trump administration is changing immigration enforcement across many agencies, including some things that have not gotten a lot of attention. We've arrived at Act 3 of our show, Act 3, The Terminators. So the people directing immigration policy for the White House generally don't talk much to the press. They do the work behind the scenes and out of sight from the public. But some emails were released as part of a lawsuit. And they give us the most vivid picture we have gotten of these people at work, of them enacting the project that is at the heart of this administration. On immigration, probably more than anything, the president's agenda is a radical departure from any Republican or Democrat who's ever held the office. He complains frequently about the bureaucracy, the deep state trying to thwart him. And in these emails, you see the battle play out between the political appointees and the bureaucracy. The emails show them trying to roll back one particular part of immigration policy a part that could result in half a million people having to leave the United States. In these emails, the appointee's tone is almost uniformly polite, professional. The career civil servants, asked to handle things so differently than they have in the past, they push back, respectfully, in various ways. One of our producers, Nadia Raymond, read all the emails, which took days, and put this together.
2: The emails were about this thing called TPS, Temporary Protected Status. It's a humanitarian program and it works like this. If you're in the U.S. and some sort of disaster hits your home country, an earthquake or hurricane or a war breaks out, the Secretary of Homeland Security can grant temporary protected status, which means we get it. You can't go back to your country right now, so stick around for 18 months or so. You can get a work permit, live here, settle for a bit until things clear up at home. The president's allies don't like TPS for a couple of reasons. First, It's not just for people who are here legally. If you're here illegally when disaster hits your home country, congrats, you get legal status too. Also, even though it's called temporary, it can get renewed over and over and over again. Honduras, for example, got hit by a hurricane in 1998, and it still has TPS, almost 20 years later. And these renewals, they're up to the Department of Homeland Security. Every year, they're supposed to gather information to try to figure out, has the country recovered? Is it safe for people to return home or not? If it is, they can end TPS for that country. But it's up to DHS to decide. So, for Trump political appointees to get rid of TPS for a country, what they have to do is prove that the country has recovered from whatever crisis it once had. They have to prove it's safe for people to go home. The first country they try it with is Haiti. Haiti got TPS eight years ago when that earthquake hit in 2010. In the first months of the Trump administration, the bureaucracy put together a report that said basically what they'd said in the past. Things are still bad in Haiti. Let's renew TPS. 18 more months, please. This is when a Trump appointee named Kathy Newbel Kovarik enters the scene. Before this job, she did immigration policy for Senator Chuck Grassley, an anti-immigration hardliner, who then urged the president to hire her on Twitter. So in April 2017, she sends out an email saying, basically, can anyone hustle up info on how Haiti's recovered from the earthquake? She asks for, quote, rebuilding stories, work of nonprofits, how the U.S. is helping in certain industries. We need more than Haiti is really poor stories. End quote. A researcher chimes in unhelpfully, quote, unfortunately, conditions in Haiti remain difficult. Please see below. And he goes on to share five bullet points. The first one? Haiti has not fully recovered from the 2010 earthquake. He also mentions hurricanes that have hit the island, large-scale flooding, near-famine conditions, double-digit inflation. He gets a polite, thank you, very useful, from his boss. Before long, he gets asked for more info. Can you grab more numbers on GDP growth? You said it was not so good, but can you look at longer-term trends? What about some stuff about how they're rebuilding the presidential palace? Can you try that? If there's much of a fight about any of this, it's not on email. Eventually, the staffers find some new numbers for their bosses. They know that economic growth is small, but it's there. That 98% of camps for earthquake survivors are now closed. That food shortages in the country are because of hurricanes and bad infrastructure, not necessarily related to the earthquake. In November, it's officially announced. Lose their protected status. One country down, on to the next. Next up is Sudan. And here is where this becomes a full blown smackdown between three federal agencies Homeland Security, State Department, and the Department of Defense. Sudan's had TPS since 1997 because of the civil war there. There's still widespread fighting in parts of the country. So when its TPS status comes up for review, a couple of staffers put together a draft of the country conditions describing what it's like there, and it's pretty grim. Page 3 says it's, quote, unsafe for individuals to return to Sudan. On page 4, it says, quote, termination does not appear to be warranted, meaning Sudan's TPS status should not be terminated. People should be allowed to stay in the U.S. But then on page 5, when we get to the final recommendation, it says exactly the opposite, quote, USCIS recommends termination. The higher ups notice this discrepancy and realize how it might look. Frank Cisna, the guy who's been tapped to be the new director of USCIS, another Trump political appointee, he reads the country report for Sudan and writes, quote. The memo reads like one person who strongly supports extending TPS wrote everything up to the recommendations section, and then someone who opposes extension snuck up behind the first guy, clubbed him over the head, pushed his senseless body out of the way, and finished the memo. Am I missing something? End quote. Right away, political appointee Kathy newbel is like, sorry about that. She responds, quote, well, I'll take the blame for this, and sends it to someone on her team to fix, a career civil servant named Brandon Preliger. Preliger didn't respond to my request for an interview. The administration officials in these emails didn't either. But I can tell you a few things about him. He's the chief for international and humanitarian affairs at USCIS. He's married to a former clerk for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's now a lawyer on the Mueller investigation, which, depending on how you look at it, makes him either an operative for the deep state, trying to thwart our precedent at every turn, or... A typical D.C. civil servant trying to do his job. Throughout all these emails, every so often, he pops up, calmly raising his hand and reminding everyone of the rules. He's not standing in the way exactly. It's more like he's fact-checking, waving his arms, politely warning of trouble ahead, saying, well, you can try to do that, but the facts might not be with you. He has this thing he writes over and over, like an existential truth. Country conditions are what they are. Anyway, he's assigned to fix the inconsistent memo ASAP. He responds, got it. Here's our thinking. The country conditions are what they are. If they're uncomfortable with the termination conclusion following from them and they want to stick with that conclusion, we propose paring down that section, end quote. In other words, if the conclusion doesn't match the facts, then your best bet is to remove some of the facts. He sends possible wording they could use to do that, but warns, quote, Providing sanitized country conditions in a public-facing document would open us up to the charge that our account is lopsided and invite criticism. He passes the draft back to his boss. It goes through more hands. And then it gets to one of the big guns in the Department of Homeland Security, a senior staffer named Gene Hamilton. Gene Hamilton's a political appointee. He was the person responsible for immigration policy in the transition team. He worked with Stephen Miller back in the Senate in Jeff Sessions' office. So he takes this Sudan report, and he removes even more facts than Brandon suggested. Specifically, he edits out references to human rights violations. When Brandon sees the results, he once again respectfully raises a red flag. He's like, guys, based on what they've said so far, the State Department is probably not going to like that. He adds, quote, for our part, We just say that this could be read as taking another step toward providing an incomplete and lopsided country conditions presentation to support termination. The email trail goes dead. Six days later, DHS announces they're terminating TPS for Sudan. The next day, the State Department complains, just like Brandon said they would. They say the TPS report had, quote, significant mischaracterizations that are at odds with the State Department's understanding of circumstances on the ground in Sudan. They complained they hadn't been notified of the Sudan TPS termination, that they had to find out about this when everyone else did, that they had to send diplomats and cabs to the embassies to do damage control. Then a White House official steps in. He writes Gene Hamilton to say that they'd received a, quote, flurry of emails from the State Department and the National Security Council about the Sudan decision. He tells Gene Hamilton to go back to the language that the State Department and everyone else agreed to the week before. Gene Hamilton writes back to the White House official, defiant, cc'ing all the bosses at DHS. Quote, I don't think we agree with that path. The White House doesn't write back. Less than an hour later, Gene sends another email to the same White House guy in caves. Hi again, he says. We will pull back though he says many of the concerns are, quote, entirely overblown and completely irrelevant. The next day, the Department of Defense weighs in. A foreign affairs specialist sends an email. It begins, It has been brought to our attention, and the tone of utter disapproval never lets up. She says the Sudan memo is wrong about conditions in Sudan. That armed conflict is ongoing. It's not safe for Sudanese to return there. She says what they've written is, quote, a clear departure to pass DOD messaging on Darfur to our congressional committees and foreign partners. She says the Department of Defense would appreciate being included in any policy discussions that impact Sudan. There are more emails after that. And in the end, Gene Hamilton does make a small concession. A few sentences get added back to the Sudan memo. But the result is still the same. TPS for Sudan is ended. The new guard wins one by one, the countries in these emails lose TPS. After Sudan comes Nicaragua. Soon, it's El Salvador, Nepal, Honduras. The administration ended up terminating TPS for 98% of the people who had it. I talked to government officials who've dealt with TPS, and they all said TPS was messy. That it was something temporary that became permanent, and it probably shouldn't have. But at the same time, an enormous number of people are currently living here on TPS, over 400,000. Most of them have been here, legally, for almost 20 years. Inevitably, a whole new life grows out of two decades of just being somewhere. People start businesses, buy houses, get married, have kids. And these kids, the sons and daughters of TPS recipients, U.S. citizens, they're part of the lawsuit that released all these emails. They're suing the government over this very mess so their parents aren't sent back home to a place that isn't their home anymore.
0: Nadia Raymond, she's one of the producers of our show. Back for IRCU, now you don't. The president has cut the number of refugees officially allowed into the United States from 110,000 under the previous administration, to 45,000. But in fact, in this fiscal year, they're not even going to bring in that many people. Just 22,000 will arrive. That's the smallest number ever in the history of the refugee program here. So a bunch of these refugee settlement offices that are around the country are going to be shutting down. Our producer, Zoe Chase, was there for the final days of one of them, in Garden City, Kansas.
6: I flew into a tiny airport. Garden City is southwest Kansas, the middle of the plains. Oklahoma's right below us. Colorado's not far west. Amy Longa was waiting there at the airport. She started the office four years ago for the International Rescue Committee. She told me I'd recognize her, and I did. The only black woman there, straight back tall, in a bright turquoise African print dress. Everyone recognizes Amy. I'll find out soon that even Amy refers to herself in the third person a lot. Like she'll say, everybody knows Amy. I can't get away because it's like Amy, Amy, Amy. Everywhere I go. And truly, like, the kid at the Hertz counter called out to her, Amy, have you seen this? And handed her a flyer for some kind of Hertz deal. It's like the character Amy plays in this town is bigger than Amy actually is.
3: Um, I'm fine. It's, just,
6: uh, it's Tuesday, July 24th. The office is supposed to close on Friday. I follow Amy in my rental car, and when I get there, the office looks wrecked. Cardboard boxes, an abandoned paper shredder, an old car seat. I mean, it looks closed. But Amy's in the middle of a meeting um, in Arabic. She and one of her clients are sitting in two office chairs pulled up near the door. Where you'd expect a desk between them, they're just knee-to-knee in these rolly chairs. The client's name is El-Tahir. He's from Sudan. He's apparently asking Amy to help him figure out why he got his federal tax refund, but not his state one. Amy takes the papers he brought, says she'll look into it.
3: Okay, now, are you comfortable... Leaving this with me, and we make appointment tomorrow, okay. what do you want to do? I can't. I'm,
6: I'm looking around at this abandoned office and Amy, and I'm like, what? Appointment tomorrow? Okay, so why are you still having these conversations if you're going to be closed in two days?
3: Because technically the office is still open. The office is open.
6: You're the only one here.
3: I am the only one <laughs> And I'm here. Yeah. I'm supposed to have packed all this. And I, um, it's difficult to pack when you still have to answer these questions.
6: Refugee resettlement is exactly what you'd imagine if you've ever thought about it. You do a bunch of interviews overseas, go through a major security screening process. You fly to the United States. Someone meets you at the airport and takes you to your new home. The U.S. government funds a sparse apartment with food that's culturally relevant, like food that will be familiar to you, as well as cash assistance, housing assistance. This lasts for three months while you look for work and go through some cultural orientation. And all this is managed by a resettlement agency, a nonprofit that contracts with the State Department to do this stuff. In Garden City, it's the International Rescue Committee, the IRC. They help you get a social security card, figure out your health insurance, find a job, go learn English. Pretty much all the things that make up a life here. Three months, 90 days. I do wonder how they came up with that, making a whole life in 90 days. The IRC office works with their clients for up to five years with some government assistance. Most of Amy's time is spent with clients far longer than 90 days. This guy from Sudan, he's been here two years. This office is being closed because so few refugees will be relocated here in the future. But the fact is, Amy is right in the middle of these relationships, and she has to cut them off. The people who are resettled here have a never-ending range of questions. <laughs> For instance, this is Edie. He came to Garden City recently via a refugee camp in Tanzania. He's Congolese. He's a very giggly guy, but I think it's nerves. He comes in, sits down with Amy, and unfolds a paper with four questions on it. One is about a guy not calling him back with a job. Another is about a bank card. How to use it? He didn't have a pin number. Know what a pin was? She activates it.
3: Activated. Very happy Now, good, good.
6: <laughs> There's a church question, a health insurance question. Then he thinks of two more. Another question now, please. Sorry. It's like this all the time. How do I get a birth certificate for my new baby daughter? How much does it cost? How is my green card application doing? Do they need more information? Is my boss racist? Then why isn't he responding? How much is it to go to the dentist? Should I pull this tooth out of my mouth? If I pull the tooth, should I replace it with a new tooth or leave the gap? And what will people around here think if I have a gap? Is that bad? Where is the dentist's office? One night, Amy's meeting with this guy at his apartment. And when she's done, this other guy, who's not even a client, runs after her and yells at her from a balcony that he needs to talk. And she's got three days left in this job, but she makes an appointment with him, too. And again, I'm like, why are you meeting with this guy? Like, where is he going to sit, even?
3: He walked out of that house. I'm sure he knew in the sitting room, he knew the IRS is there, or Amy. And as we moved out, he got out to the balcony and said, I'm gonna take this chance and ask. If it was not something important, he wouldn't have pushed the button that far.
6: Amy has this ability where it's like she imagines all the thoughts in their head. She can picture the entire thought process of the person who's sitting in front of her.
3: He just didn't jump out and run. He he chewed it, he digested it. Mm-hmm. That's your problem, I think. You can
6: imagine everybody's reality too closely. (laughs) Amy has been a displaced person. First from Uganda, then to Sudan. She ended up in Khartoum. Then she had to flee Khartoum. Then back to Uganda, where she was displaced again, until she went to college in the capital city, Kampala. Then she worked for the U.N. Then she came to the U.S. Amy's clients. Lots of them non-English speaking, unskilled labor, job-having... This is where the immigration debate lives. President Trump's idea, the idea of America first, it kind of means fewer people like this. Why can't we take care of the people in America first? Trump supporters have said that to me for years now, that they think refugees take American jobs. They cost taxpayers too much money, these government grants to resettle refugees. This county in Kansas went 63% for Trump. So I figure a lot of people here like his policies. I found one of them on Facebook being skeptical of refugees. Then I found her in real life. All right. I'm going to come a little closer in a farmhouse just past the meatpacking plant. She and her husband were sitting in their garage, watching baseball, drinking beers, throwing the cans into the corner. Well, I'm here. Okay, so who are you, sir? I'm John Becker. Okay. And um, Mr. Becker, what do you make of this refugee resellment office closing?
0: I don't even know what it is. Oh, okay.
6: So, you know, refugees come into Garden City, Kansas, right?
0: Refugees.
6: Refugees. What does that mean? Okay, what's a refugee? A refugee is like basically they've been they're coming from a, you know, a war-torn country, a Somalia, the Congo, Sudan, stuff like that. No, I don't that. buy that. I don't believe that. Okay. Well, I'll just tell you the definition of it first no, no, and I then. I don't I'll... believe that. Okay. And they get, you know, vetted extensively. I don't believe that either. You don't believe the vetting thing? No, I don't yeah. believe they're vetted either. Right. Well, I guess the distinction that I just do want to make, though, is that they are here legally. It's not illegal immigration. You know, they have permission to be here. They're flown over here by the UN and the State Department. Why are they doing that? Well, because, you know, they're refugees. They can't go home, you know, Why so they're they? because their home is unsafe. Uh,
3: I, don't that. I don't believe that either.
6: Why don't you believe I just
0: it? I don't believe all that stuff.
6: John Becker is not the first person I've met who wants a moratorium on refugees. He is the first one who doesn't seem to believe in them, like they're unicorns or elves. Well, it seems to me that now that they're closing down the office, there'll be fewer refugees here. Somebody is um, seeing things the way you are.
5: So there's going to be fewer of them? Yeah. Oh, well, I applaud that. It's the
6: Trump administration. —
5: We don't want to change our whole society here, Uh just for a few refugees. — We don't want to do that. — Bigger
4: town, bigger city, maybe?
6: They come here to change our culture. That's how the Beckers see it. Not to state the very, very obvious, but this is the opposite of Amy. Whereas she imagines their lives and needs to the point of anguish sometimes, he doesn't believe they actually exist. He can't imagine their lives. The county that Garden City is in isn't majority white anymore. There are taco spots, there's a Vietnamese grocery store, there's a Somali neighborhood. And the IRC office, in a way, acts as the glue between these two parts of the town that are coming together. My impression is that most people in the town don't want the office to close at all. People like the chief of police, who loves Amy, loves the IRC office, they work together particularly closely when the Somali community here was threatened by a bomb plot by white militia guys outside of town. The local hospital works closely with the IRC. So do the local schools. The Beckers complained newcomers aren't assimilating fast enough. John Becker said a few times, why don't they want to be Americans? But they very obviously do. That's why lots of them are in the IRC office day after day, like wide-eyed kids on the first day of high school. Help me figure out how to fit in. In this city, now, they won't be totally on their own. But they won't have Amy.
0: Zoe Chase is one of the producers here at our show. Da, da, da,
1: da. What do you want the world to look like? What do you want it to be? Do you know that the world has two sides and nobody is free? Did your mama
6: come from Mexico? Papa come from Palestine, seeking ultra-Syria, crossing all
0: the borderlines. Our program was produced today by Nadia Raymond. The people who put together today's show included Zoe Chase, Danny Chivas, Neil Drumming, Hillary Elkins, Damian Gray, Michelle Harris, Hannah Joffrey Wald, David Kestenbaum, Seth Lind, Anna Martin, Nikki Meek, Ben Phelan, Robin Semian, Alyssa Shipp, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, Julie Whitaker, and Diane Wu. Our senior producers, Brian Reed, our managing editor, Susan Burton. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Support for This American Life comes from ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter is dedicated to making hiring simple, matching technology, designed to find qualified candidates and actively invite them to apply. Learn more at ZipRecruiter.com slash life. And from HomeAdvisor, matching homeowners with home improvement professionals for a variety of home projects from minor repairs to major remodels. Homeowners can read reviews of local pros and book appointments online at HomeAdvisor.com. Thanks as always to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tony Mautia. You know he keeps inviting me to this little vacation house he has, and whenever I ask him like, "What is it like?" he's so vague. He's just
2: the country conditions are what they are.
0: I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life.